Romans 9 in our study again this morning. And we're really just starting to move through this section that um, covers chapters 9, 10, and 11 as a complete section. And I know everyone did their homework this week, read through all three chapters. So just go ahead and keep doing that once, once a week. That's all I'm asking. But in these three chapters where Paul has turned to address a very important, very, you could even say mysterious subject that needs to be addressed, and that is to answer the question, what about Israel? The book of Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to predominantly Gentile believers in Rome, and they were a church made up mostly of Gentiles, and he has written them this letter that has thus far outlined God's plan of salvation. He has made it very clear that everyone is a sinner. We are all sinners. That justification from sin comes through faith and faith alone, not by works of any kind. He then made the case in chapter 7, when we got to chapter 7, obviously I'm skipping a lot, but in chapter 7 that once saved, a person is no longer under the Mosaic law. He made that comment. that we, In fact, we are dead to the law but is instead under the power of the Holy Spirit. They no longer have to follow the written word handed down in the law. Now, as Paul is writing to predominantly Gentile believers, you could make the case, what does this appear to tell them? Judaism is dead, and now God has instituted another plan. At first glance, it appears to be a change in the plan of God, and not only would it appear that way to Romans 2,000 years ago, potentially, but there are many today that would say that as well. The idea is that God is, the idea is that God is done with Israel and he has now turned his attention to the church instead. The church is the new Israel and all the promises that God had given to them either have been given to the church instead or the church is the true fulfillment for what was promised to Israel. This idea, this concept, is what we call supersessionism. Sometimes we call it replacement or fulfillment theology. And you might hear any of those terms used for that. But if you were here last week, you know that that's not what I would say. And I would say that it is not what God is saying in this section through the Apostle Paul either. In fact, these chapters tell us exactly the opposite of that. He's telling us that he does still, in fact, have a plan for the nation of Israel. And that there will come a day when he will turn his attention back to the nation of Israel and he will deal with them exclusively as his chosen nation. Now, we look around us and people ask the question, and this is part of the reason for this other idea that's out there, people have to ask, how can that be? In fact, for hundreds of years, people had asked that exact same question. Over the last 2,000 years, Israel, as a complete nation, had supposedly ceased to exist. They were scattered from the land. They were run out and spread across the world. And for many years, you had the Jews throughout the world. You had Jews throughout the world, but there was no nation of Israel. Not until 1948, at least. If you were a believer living 200, 300, 1,000 years ago, you might think to yourself, God is done with Israel. He has to be. They're gone. There's no Israel anymore. How can we take these promises given to a nation that doesn't exist? Over the last 2,000 years, really almost 3,000 years, the world has not been kind 
to Israel. It's enough to make one wonder, does God still have a plan for them? Well, Romans 9 through 11 answers that question. It's not the only place that answers that question, but it's a good place to start because this is the question that Paul is really writing to answer, that he's dealing with in these chapters. When people say that Israel is done and the church is God's chosen nation instead, they're failing to take something into account. And what they fail to take into account is God's sovereignty, his plan. When I see that the world, when I see what the world has done to the people of Israel, I might think to myself, they've taken them out. They've rendered them obsolete. But the world is not God. When I think about Israel's sin and their rejection of their Messiah, how they crucified him on a cross, I might think to myself, they've done themselves in. They've taken themselves out of the picture. They have rendered themselves irrelevant by committing a sin that's so great. But Israel is not God either. Who is God? Only God is God. God is the one who said, I will establish the throne of David forever. They will be my people. I will be their God. You see what this comes down to and what we don't always fully understand and fully take into account is the plan of God. We do know, we, or sorry, we do not know all that God has planned. We don't know all the intricate details of how God is going to accomplish his plans. And that's the first thing that we need to realize. We don't know it all. And therefore, we shouldn't be quick to fill in the blanks for him. Israel rejected their Messiah and then all but disappeared. God still has a plan for them. We don't know how, we don't know when, but that doesn't change the plan at all. We know a little bit more now in our day and age than past centuries did because we have seen Israel come back into their land. Not all of it, but there is at least a nation there once again. There is a nation of Israel, living in Israel. There are almost 9 million people living there, at least if I can believe Wikipedia. But anyway, just a general number. But you know what that tells me? Is that God is working out his plan. His sovereign plan for his chosen nation. God has it all worked out. We don't need to worry about that in any way. He's got it all figured out. We might even see a day where they get scattered again. Maybe not in our lifetime, but maybe they'll get scattered from the land again. That doesn't mean that we then go back and say, oh, well, I guess we were wrong. No, it just means that the timing isn't right yet. When we look around and we don't understand how God is going to do something, it certainly doesn't mean that he can't or that he won't. It just means that he hasn't revealed to us yet how he's going to do that. God's plan for Israel is still in the works. It's still in effect. And these three chapters go a long way in explaining how that plan is working in light of the salvation that has come and even been offered to the Gentiles. Now, we started looking in chapter 9 last week. And in the first five verses, we saw Paul's struggle, his grief over the present condition of his Jewish brethren. 
And he has reason to grieve for them because they have sinned. They have sinned in spite of the fact that God had given them every advantage. What advantages did they have? We saw a list of nine things. We saw that they had the blessing of God in being called Israelites. They had the privilege of being called the Son of God, His firstborn. They were witnesses of the glory of God. They were the recipients of the covenants that had been promised to them. The law had been given to the nation of Israel. They were the keepers of the knowledge of the system of worship. If you wanted to know how to worship God, you had to go through Israel. They had the promises of the Old Testament. They were the ones who were descended from the Old Testament fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And most of all, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, came down to earth as an Israelite, as a Jew. And he came to them first of all. In light of all of those privileges, blessings that no other nation had on earth, they rejected the plan of God. They rejected all this. Do you know what some Jews say today? They would tell you that Jesus Christ couldn't have been the real Messiah. There's no way that it's possible. And the reason they say that is because they say if he had been, then the Jews in his day would have believed in him. Since they didn't believe in him, he obviously couldn't have been the Messiah of Israel. And that's the logic that is sometimes used. They have more faith in their Jewish kinsmen, in the people that lived back in that day, in the knowledge and wisdom of those Jews that lived at that time than they have in their own Messiah, who came to them. God himself became a man and came to his people, and they didn't receive him. Well, as we come to verse 6, of chapter 9 of Romans, we see Paul start to draw out the plan of God that explains all of this, that gives us details in all of this. Why did they reject their own Messiah? How can we say that God still has a plan for them when they want nothing to do with Jesus Christ and with the plan of salvation that God has detailed in the first eight chapters of the letter? By and large, the Jews don't accept all that we've seen in the first eight chapters of Romans. Could God's word, given through the prophets all those years before, could that have been wrong? Could it have failed? And the answer is found in the following verses. Look with me starting in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And this initial statement, it is not as though the word of God has failed. This is a very important phrase, a very important statement to keep in mind. You might want to underline this phrase because this statement launches us into the discussion that we see in the next three chapters. This statement is really the theme or the premise that Paul is dealing with throughout these chapters. Has the word of God failed? All that God has promised and blessed Israel with, was it all for nothing? No. And here's why. He starts off by saying, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Not every Israelite is part of the covenant relationship that God has established with Israel. And you could say with the man Israel, because this all stems from 
Jacob, who was renamed Israel. Right? We saw that last week, back in Genesis chapter 32, when Jacob wrestled with God and God blessed him and gave him the name Israel. We need to keep in mind as we go through this passage this morning that we're dealing with and talking about Abraham's physical descendants. Paul really established that in the first five verses of the chapter. Abraham then, through Isaac and then through Jacob, that physical line of people. There's a pervasive school of thought that this passage proves that what we're talking about here is that the Jews no longer matter as a nation of people that this passage disproves the importance of that physical line. And that school of thought says that since grace has come, Israel is no longer important. Now, all that matters is the church. And that whenever the New Testament talks about Abraham's descendants or the nation of Israel, it's referring to anyone who believes regardless of their nationality. And that goes back to that replacement theology I mentioned earlier. But that's not what this passage is saying. Keep in mind who we are talking about when we're talking about the descendants of Israel. We're talking specifically about the descendants of that nation that came down through Jacob, through the man Jacob, not just through Abraham. As we go through this section, we'll see Paul make distinctions about Abraham's physical offspring dividing them into groups, and then also talking about Isaac's physical offspring. And then, as we see here in verse 6, there is reference to the distinction among the offspring of Jacob. The point that Paul is making here is this. Not every physical descendant of Jacob is going to receive the covenantal promises, just as not not all of Abraham's offspring did, and not all of Isaac's offspring did. Or another way to put it is just because someone is a physical descendant through that line of people that came down through Israel, that doesn't automatically make them a part of the true nation of Israel. And that's the point here. And the explanation of this point is what's forthcoming in the chapter. And this is what he talks about starting in verse 7. He says, nor are are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So this is the first example. This is the first thing Paul points out here, that not everyone who was a physical descendant of Abraham was a child of God. This would have been a very difficult concept for the Jews to grasp. They believed that they were saved because they were physically descended from Abraham. They put a lot of stock into this physical descent, into the physical fact that they were the children of Abraham, this relationship. But that relationship alone was not enough. To see this mindset, turn with me over to John chapter 8. And I mentioned this passage last week, and I said you could go and look it up later in the day. So I'm sure everyone read it. (laughs) So this will be a refresher. But let's turn and look at it now. In John chapter 8, Jesus has a discussion with some Jews. And this is a group of men who are physically descended from Abraham, right? These are Jews, right? They're physical descendants of Abraham. And in verse 33, these Jews tell him, we are Abraham's descendants. 
But look down at verse 37. Look what he tells them in verse 37. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. Now, here's a group of people. Physically, they came from Abraham, right? Jesus doesn't deny that. In fact, he affirms that. I know that you are Abraham's descendants. But he then goes on to tell them that the things which they do and say are a result of whom they truly belong to, who their father is. But they don't understand that. They don't understand that question, that concept. Look at verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to him, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who, was, who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. They are not truly exhibiting the characteristics of one who was truly born of Abraham. Who were they born of? Who was their father? He mentions another father. Skip down to verse 44. He tells him plainly, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What's his point? How does this being descended from Abraham, which he acknowledges they're descended from Abraham, but not being of their father Abraham work? What's he saying? Well, the point is simply this. The true child of Abraham not only is one who is descended from him physically, but who also has his heart, the heart of a righteous man, the, a man who believed God and was reckoned by God as being righteous. And what is reckoned by God as being righteous? What is that called? Justification, justified, which we saw earlier in Romans only comes through faith. These Jews didn't show the characteristics of those who are the true children of God because they did not truly believe. They were not justified and thus were not truly children of Abraham. Descended from Abraham physically? Yes. Part of the physical nation of Israel? Yes. Part of the true nation of Israel and thus the family of God? No. There is a distinction, and that distinction is what Paul is bringing out in Romans chapter 9. On the way back to Romans, turn over to Romans chapter 2. We saw this last week a little bit, but it bears repeating, because Paul has mentioned some of these concepts throughout our study, but he hasn't really gone into any detail into it yet. And if you remember, Romans is building blocks, right? He mentions things, and then later on we get more details, and this is one of those things. If you remember back in Romans chapter 2, Paul was talking about those who are under condemnation. And in the second chapter, he started talking about those who knew more, right? They were given more advantages. They had more knowledge than the people that he was referring to in chapter 1. Chapter 1 was all about general knowledge, knowing that God existed, knowing right from wrong, murder, stealing, adultery, homosexuality. Those things were all inherently wrong. Everyone knows that. But then in chapter 2, we have more than just that general knowledge. 
we have God's word that has been revealed to people. And by and large, it became apparent that those people to whom Paul was referring to were the Jews because they were the ones that had, God had directly given his revelation to. In the first half of the chapter, he talked about God's impartiality. If you sin, you stand condemned. Even if you know more as the Jews did. Just because you know more, that doesn't get you out of it. If you practice the same things as someone who's been given more knowledge, but you practice the same things that the people that haven't been given much knowledge of, you still stand condemned. You are just as guilty as they are, and you are storing up wrath for yourself. Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. If you are a sinner, you stand under the condemnation of God. In verse 11, he summed it up by saying, for there is no partiality with God. The point he was making there was that just because you are a Jew who had the law, who had the advantages from God, those same advantages that we saw listed out in the first five verses of, of chapter 9, that doesn't automatically get you in. It doesn't save you. And that would have been something that the Jews didn't understand because that's what they thought. Down to verse 17. We're getting to the point of coming to chapter 2. Verse 17, he says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, and then he proceeds to again list out a bunch of things that the Jews held on to as their guarantee into God's family, into heaven, those advantages. He even starts to talk later on about circumcision, being circumcised. If you bear the name Jew, but then he states down in verses 28 and 29, which are the verses that we saw last time. He says, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And here we really get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the heart. He's not saying here, the outward physical things of being a Jew aren't important. He's saying that's not enough. You can be a physical Jew. You can have the law. You can be circumcised, have done all the rituals and rites that were handed down by Moses and the forefathers. But if you have not believed, if you have not been circumcised of heart, had your heart changed by the power of God through faith, then you are not saved. You are still condemned. You are still lost in your sins. And so that's why he says, if you bear the name Jew, he's talking there specifically to those who would call themselves Jew that were of that physical line and have not believed. If you bear the name Jew and have not believed, then you are not a true Jew. And that is the same point that Jesus is making in John chapter 8. If there has been no change in heart, which brings about change in your life, then you are not truly saved. That's the point that Paul is making in Romans 9 as well. There are other factors that come into play other than just the physical aspect. So back in Romans 9, when Paul says, "...nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants." This would be a hard concept for anyone in the nation of Israel to grasp because they felt that being Abraham's descendants was all that they needed. Where Abraham's descendants were in. 
So Paul goes through and he's showing that there is more to it than that. And he starts off with even Abraham's immediate offspring. Even with Abraham's immediate offspring, there was still a a distinction. Because he says, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. And this is a quote from Genesis chapter 21. It's not enough to just be descended from Abraham. But the promises come from Abraham through Isaac. Isaac was the child of promise. Abraham had other children. Ishmael from Hagar was his firstborn, right? And with his wife after Sarah, Keturah, he had many sons as well. So it's not as if Isaac was an only child, but he was the only child of promise. So look at what Paul says in verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now, in these opening verses, all he's saying, again, is that simply being a physical descendant of Abraham is not all that there is to it. He's not saying that it's not important at all. It's just not the only criteria that needs to be met. It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. This phrase doesn't mean that no children of the flesh, no physical descendants are children of God, or that no physical descendants are saved. It's not that it isn't important at all. It's just not the only thing that there is. It's not all that there is. Say a person's going on a trip to Europe, right? Somewhere out of the country. And they buy a ticket, and they're all ready to go. It's their first trip out of the country. And then someone asks them a little bit later on, oh, you're going on this trip. Do you have your passport? What? Do you have a passport? Oh, no. I've never been out of the country. I didn't realize. I didn't didn't even think of that. I guess I'll go and I'll get my passport. So he goes. He goes through the process. He gets the passport. He has the passport in hand. It's time for his trip. He grabs all his stuff. He grabs his passport, and he takes that all to the airport with him. He shows up to the airport, and what's the first thing they're going to want to see? At the airport, they want to see his ticket. So he takes out his newly acquired passport, and he says, I have my passport. Uh, That's nice. Where's your ticket? You need a ticket. Well, I had a ticket, but somebody told me I needed a passport. So I went and got the passport. So here's my passport. They're not letting him on the plane without a ticket, right? He's got the passport, he needs the passport, but he needs the ticket too. What's the deal? Do you need a ticket or do you need a passport? Yes, you need both, right? We understand that. You need to have both. Just because you say, oh, this this criteria is important, it doesn't mean that the other criteria isn't also important. They're both necessary. Now, borrowing the same language that Paul uses here in verse 8, we could say, within the context of our example, it's not the person with a passport that's going to Europe, it's the person with a ticket that's going to Europe. The idea being that just having the passport doesn't get you there on its own. You also have to have the ticket. This is the same thing that Paul is presenting here, the same idea. We come to Romans chapter 9, and people say that because Paul starts to refer to being a child of promise, that the physical criteria of being a Jew is not important at all. They just throw that out the window. 
That's not what Paul is saying here. What he's really saying is that the physical criteria is not enough. It's not all that's important. Now, what we're talking about is the same argument that we saw in John chapter 8, as well as what Paul already presented back in uh, Romans chapter 2. We saw that those arguments are really pretty much the same, that they were people who had the same name, but didn't carry out the actions of the one who was a true Jew. They didn't have the transformed heart. Having stated that earlier, now he's going into more detail, and we have some elaboration. So what is the distinction? What is that added element? But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. It is the promise of God. The one that was promised is the true descendant of Israel. The one who had the special designation attached, like having the ticket. God didn't tell Abraham, go have some kids, and all the kids that you have will be blessed. No, there were specific criteria, and we get that when we get to chapter or verse 9 here. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. God promised a son to Abraham through Sarah, right? There's a specific avenue. Is this important that it comes from Abraham or that it comes from Sarah? It was to God. This was his purpose. This was his will. This was his choice. Now, what did Abraham do? If you remember back to the account, once Abraham heard this, right, he, it takes years before this promise is fulfilled. So in those years that Abraham is waiting, he takes matters into his own hands. First telling God, I'm too old. I'll have my servant Eliezer be my heir. I'll fulfill this myself through someone that's in my own household. God says, no, that's not going to do it. Then Abraham has a son by Hagar. This time it's a true offspring of his, right? It's really his son. Ishmael was the son of Abraham. God tells him, no, that wasn't enough. The son that God had promised would be through Sarah. The son of promise was Isaac. The fulfillment of, Ab of the Abrahamic covenant is limited to those who come through the child of promise. Promise being the key word in this phrase, in this verse here. What are we seeing here? This is the sovereignty of God at work. It isn't simply a physical relationship. Abraham had other sons. It isn't an issue of being firstborn. Ishmael was older than Isaac. Ishmael was really the firstborn. This is God sovereignly choosing a line of descendants through a specific child of Abraham's. He chose the promise to come through one son, Isaac. He did not choose Abraham's other sons through which he would fulfill this promise. He chose Isaac. Looking at the example of Isaac, some people would argue, well, the Jews could argue, well, that's not a good example because Abraham's other sons were from different women. We are Abraham's offspring through Sarah, as was promised. We are of the physical line. Okay, Maybe they could make that case. But at the very least, he's established here that simply being a descendant of Abraham isn't all that there is. It's not enough by itself. And there are certain conditions put upon it. And now in the next verse, Paul goes down to the next generation as further evidence of this. 
showing even clearer that it was God's sovereign intervention that determined who would receive these blessings. Verse 10, he says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. So before, with Abraham, we had two different mothers, right? We had children by two different mothers, actually three if you include Keturah. You had Hagar and Sarah. They had two different kids, Ishmael, not the child of promise, and Isaac, who was the child of promise. But in the next generation, you don't have that problem. Now the next generation down, we're talking about the distinction between two sons who were born from the same woman, the same mother, Rebecca. And not only were they from the same mother, but they were twins. The language in this verse is very specific. Very limiting to what really occurred here. You really can't have two sons any more closely connected than what we have right here. We have one woman, Rebecca, and she conceived by one, is what it really says. Most translations say one man, uh, but it literally just says one. And this is referring to one deposit of seed, one act of intercourse, and that was an act through one promised son, Isaac. It was a very specific single avenue that these twins came into existence by. And this makes sense to us because we all know how the physiology of having twins works, right? It's through one act. It happened at one time. And what we have from this one act is our, our two sons that are closely related to each other as could be humanly possible. You can't find any distinction that would make one of these sons physically superior to, any, to each other in, in any way, right? One didn't come earlier and later. I mean, I know twins are born one after the other, but, but for the most part, this is as close of a relationship. This is as close of having two people that have no distinctions as you can possibly get. And yet, it is from among these two sons that God made a sovereign choice. Look at verse 11. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. What we see here is God's sovereign work in election up close. We're starting to get the details of what Paul has mentioned a few times already. We're talking about the doctrine of election here. We have two sons, twins, brought about at the same time, conceived at the same time. And before they were born, before they had done any act at all, good or bad, God made a choice between the two of them. The emphasis here is on the fact that this is an act of God that is in no way dependent upon the actions or works of the individuals involved. When God made his decision, it was, e it was before either of them had done any acts at all. Regardless of the quality of their actions, they hadn't done anything at that point. They hadn't even been born yet. This passage completely does away with the idea that some have that election is based on foreknowledge. We talked about this when we were back in chapter 8, when Paul talked about those whom he foreknew in verse 29 of chapter 8. 
Some get the idea that God's election was based on him looking ahead in time and seeing what either of the twins would do, and based on that, he chose one and not the other. That's how some people settle the difficulties of election in their minds, by saying, well, it was obvious that Jacob was the good one and Esau... I'm not going to answer that. That Jacob was the good one (laughs) and Esau was the bad one. So it makes sense that God would choose Jacob over Esau. But what Paul is saying here really makes that impossible. His choice was not based on works of any kind. To say that God looked ahead and chose them based on what they would do means that we can scratch verse 11 right off, right out of our Bibles. Because the point of this verse is exactly the opposite of that. First thing it says is that they weren't born. They hadn't done anything. And then it says that God's decision wasn't based on works. What works could that be? It could only be talking about future works, right? They hadn't been born, so there was no works that they had done. It could only be talking about future works, what they might or might not do, because they had no other works at that point. The works that the twins would do someday down the road were not factor into God's choice in any way. This was an absolutely sovereign choice of God. So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. This literally says, according to the election purpose of God, the purpose he brought about through his choice. They're quite persistent. In order that his electing purpose might be carried out. I just want to point out, choice and election, if, if some people say, well, I don't believe in election. This word choice is the word for election. So it is right there. So choice or election are the same, the same thing in this context here. In order that his electing purpose might be carried out. Where does this put the responsibility of election? It's on God. What about our role in election? It doesn't exist beyond the fact that we are the ones elected if we are if we have been elected. Election is the sovereign choice of God himself. What did I do to get myself elected? Nothing. What is it that I'm going to do down the road that I can say, oh, that was it. That was the one thing that God saw. Nothing. No. Nothing. It isn't anything I've done, am going, am am doing now, or will ever do. Like I mentioned before, there are some who say, Look at the life of Jacob and Esau. By looking at what kind of men they were, it's easy to see why God chose Jacob and not Esau. But again, that's completely contrary to what we're seeing here. In fact, in light of what Paul is saying here in verse 11, what we can really conclude is, look at the life of Jacob and Esau, and you can see the result of God choosing Jacob and not choosing Esau. God calling Jacob and not Esau. It's the result of the choice of, being, of God being manifest in their lives, not the result or not the reason behind his choice. What is the cause of this choice? It just says because of him who calls. It's God's choice. 
God sovereignly made a determination of which one was going to be saved based upon God alone. Ephesians 1 tells us that it, was, that it pleased God to do it this way. It was his good pleasure to do it this way. There's another thing to note here in verse 11, and it's that the purpose of God might stand. He uses that phrase, might stand. And this is exactly the opposite of what we saw up in verse 6. The word of God hasn't failed. He uses that word failed. It's a word, the might stand word is a word meaning to abide, to continue on. God's choices, his decisions, they all stand. They are made by him and they aren't alterable and they do not fail. This reaffirms what we've already seen, that God, having chosen us and called us, will keep us. But also in this context, God, having chosen Israel, will keep Israel as well. His choice of her as a nation will stand as well. And there's confidence in that. God's choice is spoken of um, in verse 12, he says, it was, it was said to her, this was to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. God's sovereign choice was for the older to serve the younger. This was contrary to the normal flow of events. The normal pattern was for the younger to serve the older. The older would have the birthright. And if you remember Jacob and Esau, right? They were twins, born at quote-unquote the same time, but Esau was born first and Jacob was holding on to his his heel or his uh, uh, ankle or heel, I can't remember, um, when he came out. But Esau was the older. But throughout their lives, the roles changed, and Jacob ended up with the birthright. And we know, we know that account. Esau sold his birthright for a meal, for a bowl of soup. But regardless of the means, Jacob ended up with it just as God determined that he would end up with it. Now, up to this point... People don't normally have too much of an issue. God chose Jacob to be over Esau. Chose the line of promise to come down through Jacob's offspring, not Esau's offspring. There may be some questions about it here and there, but for the most part, we pretty much accept, accept it for what it says. The difficulty comes in, and a lot of pushback comes in when we get to verse 13. Because verse 13 says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. First reaction that most people have is, how, how, can, this, how can we say this? How can God say this? I, cannot, I, I, you know, I can accept the fact that he chose Jacob, or he chose Isaac and not Ishmael, and he chose Jacob and not Esau, but now we cross a line kind of in our minds to make a statement that he didn't simply not choose Esau, but it says that he hates Esau. He hated him. And this doesn't sit well with people. Now, to soften it a bit, some try to explain this in a couple different ways. One reason, one way they try to soften it is they say, well, what we're talking about here is on a national level. Paul is quoting from Malachi chapter 1. And what we see here, uh, see there, is a discussion on God's dealings with the Jews and the Edomites. And that is true. That is where this comes from. And that is what's being dealt with there. And we'll actually look at Malachi 1 in just a minute. I think we will. So from that standpoint, they say that there are national implications to this, and it's not really a personal thing. 
However, in Romans 9, the argument Paul is presenting is, regard, is in regard to the, in, the, the, the election of these individuals. Yes, it's in the overall context of talking about Israel as a nation. But Paul is talking about how individuals within that nation were chosen, how some could be saved while others were not. He's dealing with Abraham as an individual, Isaac as an individual, Jacob and Esau as two distinct individuals. Later on in the chapter, we'll see him talk about Pharaoh as an individual. It was the individual election or non-election of these individuals that carry over to the nations that came after them. Furthermore, if we do say that we're, if we try to soften this by saying that, well, we're talking about nations and not people, it really makes the statement worse, actually. Now we're saying that God doesn't just hate the man Esau, we're saying that he hates all of the Edomites, right? That Edomites were the people that came from Esau's line. The entire nation of individuals that came through Esau. So that really doesn't make this less severe. The second way that people soften it is, is they say that this is more of a comparison, that what it really means is that God loves Jacob, but he just loved Esau less. And it's true that this comparison is used in Scripture. In Luke chapter 14, we're told that anyone who doesn't hate his own father and mother cannot be a disciple of Jesus. But then we read in Matthew chapter 10 that you shouldn't love your father or mother more than Jesus. The example there would indicate that we are to love Christ more, and the comparison would be that we love him so much more that we, in effect, hate everyone else in comparison. But this isn't the same thing here. For one thing, the distinction that we're talking about is black and white. This is dealing with someone whom God has either chosen or hasn't chosen. They are either his children or they are not. They are destined for glory or condemnation. Even if this is loving more and less, the outcome is the same here. We still have God's sovereign choice of one resulting in salvation and God's not choosing the other, which results in condemnation. Now, that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about God's hatred towards those who have rejected him. His hatred that results in condemnation. Turn with me over to the book of Malachi. Right. I mentioned this a minute ago, Malachi chapter 1. This is the last book of the Old Testament, so find Matthew and go back a book. In Malachi chapter 1, right at the beginning of the book, we see this. This is where this phrase comes from, this quote comes from. It says in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Through Edom, Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. You see here, this is the result of God's election, like we talked about before. God chose Jacob, chose him over Esau. And the result here, years later, years after that had 
happened is that Jacob and his descendants stand in the love of God. They're God's chosen nation. While Esau and his are subject to the hatred of God. And along with that hatred, there's condemnation. There is the wrath of God on those who are wicked. There's one thing that we need to remember that I think sometimes we lose focus on. We're not talking about an innocent mass of humanity that is caught in the middle of a fight between good and evil. We don't have God and Satan fighting over the neutral people to see which side they'll join. This isn't like, you know, on the playground where choose your team, I'll choose him, I'll choose him. That's not how this works. We're talking about the sinful mass of humanity. The mass of humanity who on their own do not match up to the perfection or the righteousness of God from which God in his mercy has chosen some to be his children. We need to keep perspective on the condition that the people in this world are in. And this is where we, we're keeping a focus on the overall context of the book of Romans is essential. If you remember back in the first chapters of Romans, chapters 1 through 3, we are told that there is no one good. No one is righteous. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. They continually operate in their wicked and depraved condition. At the very beginning of that section, how did Paul start it off? In verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Just like what was being shown to Esau and his descendants, God's wrath is upon them, is being revealed to them. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that the lost are the enemies of God. In chapter 8, he says that those in the flesh are hostile to God, do not subject themselves to God, are not able to please God. When we're talking about God choosing between Jacob and Esau, he's making a choice to save some out of this vile mass of humanity, which, if left on its own, would do nothing but oppose him at every turn. Some people become defensive, even angry at times, when we say that God chose some, but that he didn't choose the rest. And we might think, how could he do that? How could God just choose some, but not others? But we need to be careful asking those questions, because that question really shows a lack of understanding of the depths of the depravity of man. What the real question we should ask is, how can he choose some to escape the wrath that they deserve. If we knew of two men that were sitting in jail, one man blew up a school bus full of children. The other man went on a shooting rampage in a mall and killed 30 people, right? Both of which are things that we could actually see happening in our day and age, right? We know that these two people are sitting in, in prison and a judge comes in and he looks at them both and he knows what they've done. And he says, well, I'm going to let this one go, but I'm going to have this one go to prison. Can you imagine the outcry that there would be after that happened? Think about what we would think if that happened. What would our reaction be to hear that that happened? Would we all be saying, how unfair? 
Why didn't he let both of them go? Why didn't he let both of them just go free? How unfair that he only let one go free. No, that's not what we would say. We all know that's not what we would say. We wouldn't even think about that. We'd be upset that he let either one of them go. We'd be upset that he let either of those monsters go free. You see, when we put this in perspective, the real shock isn't that God hated Esau. The real shock was that he could love Jacob. When it comes to God loving any one of us, that's what's truly unfair. Because we all deserve the same condemnation and the, that God manifested against Esau. Psalm 5.5 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. He hates all that do iniquity. Who is that? All those in the flesh. All those who are sinners. Wait a minute. We ask ourselves, what about God's love? Isn't God love? Doesn't he love sinners? Doesn't he love the world? Yes. He does. God showed his love to the world by providing them with a means of salvation. He has provided them with a way out, a way to fix their relationship. Because of his mercy, he has also shown the world love. We talked about that in Romans chapter 5. God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love of action that he has shown the world. But that doesn't mean that he approves of or overlooks anything that they do. And keep in mind, what they do is sin. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. He hates the one who loves violence. He isn't talking about the violence, but the one who loves the violence. The sinner is again an individual hatred. Proverbs 6. 16 through 19. There are six things, that's, six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. We see here that sin and the sinner are wrapped up together. It doesn't say that he hates haughtiness, does it say that he hates lying? The hatred is against those who do these things. He hates the eyes, the tongue, the hands, the heart, the feet, and the false witness, and the one who spreads false witness. God hates the sin and the sinner. We often say the opposite. He hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Well, here we see he hates them both. Because where does the sin come from? What is the cause of sin? The sinner. Sin's not out there without the sinner. Malachi 2.16 For I hate divorce, says the Lord. Okay, there he hates the sin. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. There's no such thing as sin apart from the sinner. He hates the sin, he hates the sinner. If God loved the sinner and only hated the sin, if man was an innocent bystander who had only his sin to blame, then why does God condemn the sinner? It's the sinner that stands condemned before God, not just their sin. Book of Revelation. We don't have time to turn there. I'll read it. 
Revelation 21.8. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable, 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 and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God is not putting sin into the lake of fire. He puts the sinners into the lake of fire. It's the ones that practice these things that the wrath of God will be poured out on, upon which God's wrath is being revealed from heaven even today. It's so important that we understand that we can't separate the sin from the sinner. We have to recognize where sin comes from. This gives us a proper perspective on God's view of sin, on God's view of fallen mankind. Some say it's not fair that he would choose some and not others. And you know what? That's right. It's not fair. He shouldn't choose any of us. That's what would be fair if he didn't choose any of us to be saved. Look at the angels for what's fair. Angels sin. They have faith. Or, uh, they are fallen and they have no hope. Not all the angels, but the angels that fall. They have no hope. There's no salvation provided for angels. But God has chosen to work with mankind differently, and we do have hope. He has provided salvation for us. And praise be to God that he has provided that for us. Now, that's as far as we're going to get this morning. Planned. Oh, we didn't, I didn't run short. But I hope this puts the sovereign choice of God in perspective for us. There's nothing special about us. Right? We'll talk more about this in coming lessons, but... There's nothing that we can claim to have done that caused God to love us over someone else. Praise God for his sovereignty. Praise God for his mercy and grace. God has provided for our redemption. He has provided a way out. Who is elect? I don't know. We, when we become saved, we don't get to see a big shiny E over the, over the heads of people that we know to be elect. We don't know who's elect. We have no idea. But we treat them all the same. They don't know the Lord, and they need to know the Lord. That's our responsibility. Even Paul, who is writing to us about God's election, who knows it better than we could possibly know it, he knows that it is determined already. He tells us in the first verse of the next chapter that he prays for the salvation of those in Israel, for those who are lost. That should be our attitude as well, to pray for them, to witness to them, so that they might know the joy of belonging to him. Let's close in a word of prayer.